Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast. You're right, this is Football Social Daily for a Monday, getting you up to speed with anything you've missed from the last 24 hours of Premier League news and getting you ready for the next 24 hours as well. I'm Jim Salverson. Marley feeling very positive. Joel feeling a bit meh about the whole situation. (laughs) But anyway, we're going to get stuck into having a bit of a grump shortly with our regular Monday moan, Get in the Sea. Plus, can we make it... Well, I was going to say, can we make it a hat-trick for wins for West Ham? But now my intro is completely blown out of the water. (laughs) But can West Ham win tonight against the resurgent Bournemouth team at the London Stadium? We'll be looking at Monday Night Football and getting a preview on that game alongside the Back of the Net boys from the AFC Bournemouth podcast you can find on the Sports Social Podcast Network. And finally... Well, it's four down, 16 to go in terms of Premier League managers. Four sackings already this season, and there's a load of managers feeling the pressure right now. Who might be the next to go and get the chop from their top flight gig? We'll finish off today's podcast with a look as to who might be going next and why it's Jesse Marsh. But let's start with Get In The Sea, an excuse to have a bit of a Monday moan. Joel, you can go first today. What would you like to whinge about? I think it would be the fans' reactions to players doing celebrations on the pitch. Because after Casemiro's last minute against Chelsea, and everyone saw like how they reacted, it was everyone was going incredibly insane. All I saw on social media was every single opposition fan saying, oh, how embarrassing, a five-time Champions League winner celebrating a draw, how this, how this status has dropped, how everything's changed for United, how they're celebrating a draw at Stamford Bridge, how the mighty have fallen, blah, 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 mm. blah, blah. Like, you have to take context into account here. They got dominated for the majority of the game at Stamford Bridge, as in Chelsea got dominated. And then they, scored, they get, a, I would say, a pretty soft penalty in the 87th minute. And I was thinking... <sighs> We got soft. Hold up, hold up. It was soft. I'm sorry, but he was falling by the time he no. was gripped. Yeah, he was falling because he got two hands around him. <sighs> I don't know about that. I don't know how it makes your legs go. But um, <laughs> it was the fact that they scored in the 87th minute and it looked as if that was game. It felt like a robbery because Chelsea literally had nothing. And the fact that United then go on the opposite end and score a last gasp equaliser. Like, what do you want the players to do? Do you want them to just like, Walk back to the centre spot and just plies, you know, it's an equaliser. Don't don't celebrate too much. We're a five-time Champions League winner. I can't celebrate anymore. <laughs> like, show a bit of emotion. It's fine because I know a lot of pundits, especially, they always look at players and complain as if they're robots, especially in the interviews, you know, with all these cliches and don't show emotion. And then when it comes to actually celebrating, suddenly it's a problem. Suddenly you're not allowed to show emotion on a football pitch. And suddenly scoring a last gasp winner is not worthy of celebrating with your fans because for me, I was screaming when that went in because I didn't think we'd end up getting back into it because it looked as if that was that was a game done considering how well they actually played in that first half an hour, I would say. So for me, it's just a case of 
It's context. I mean, I I know Arsenal, they got absolutely killed for it last season when I think Lacazette scored a, was it an equaliser against Palace maybe? And he went yeah. absolutely mm. berserk. They got a stick for it against Wolves as well. Yeah. When they beat Wolves 1-0 and Neves came out and was like, oh, I don't understand why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so that much. was the one. So Isn't this just people, like, in general, I mean, the Neves thing's slightly different, but in, ter- in general, it's people who don't really watch football just on social media. If all you look at is the result and you go, oh, they drew, why were they celebrating? That's one thing. Or if you see highlights on Twitter, when you're involved in a game, when you're watching a game, mm. emotion takes control of you. And it can be whether you're at a game or whether you're watching it on TV. But it's very easy to then celebrate a 1-1 draw, even with your I remember celebrating a Dean Ashton goal at Old Trafford when oh, we lost 3-1. That was, inc- <laughs> yeah. no, that was incredible. That was a brilliant that goal. Was incredible. Oh, it was one of my favourite ever footballing moments. Incredible. But it doesn't necessarily matter what the result is at that time. It's just how excited you get and how involved you are in the game. But if you are consuming it via your phone and it's highlights and it's results... And you're just and seeing that clip. And this is a lot of the problem with football fans on social yeah. media. That is the way they consume football. Not that that means you can consume football how you like, but it means you don't have the same emotional attachment as someone does who is in a game and enjoying it. It's kind of a difference, isn't it? It's just, it's just, you're not as involved in it, so you don't understand that level of emotion. Yeah, exactly. And because it's rival fans who probably didn't even watch it, and like you say, had no attachment to mm. the emotion around it. Like, that that goal was insane, by the way, that header. And the fact oh, that it was, that three- was one of the best headers I've ever seen. And seriously, the way he looked it, like, he literally attacked it, and it went nearly over Kepa's hand, and he, he's yeah. a pretty big keeper. And the fact that he did that four minutes after I think it just shows how much of a um, a determination and endurance we've got under Ten Hag now, and that's why it was so emotional. Because mm-hmm. it's, Chelsea are not a bad team, by the way. Like they're still unbeaten. a good side, unbeaten. unbeaten they, Potter, they, were, yeah. they had uh, was it four, five clean sheets before that game. Yeah, I think Kepa was going for five in a row. I think yeah, that's madness. That what a world we're living in. I know. Yeah, um, but the, yeah. a managerial genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's the fact that you know th- th- that was all the context around it that we nearly lost it in the eighty seventh minute and to come back. Mm-hmm. For me, I don't give it. I don't give a crap. Celebrate how you want it, even though it's not a winning goal. It's the fact that we came back four minutes later and it was an incredible goal as well. So take that. <laughs> Fair enough. I enjoyed the determination from Casemiro to not let it reach Scott McTominay because it was <laughs> like because it off, wasn't back it off. wasn't going in the goal if McTominay puts his head on it and he's thinking that is mine and then you know flying header absolutely min- great goal class. All right, Marley. Then what do you want to have a whinge about? Um, I do you know what there wasn't much this weekend that that obviously wound me up. So I picked something a little bit. Um. It's it's not that I mean I'm ultimately I'm not that bothered about it because it because it benefited my team but for in the um in the sort of spirit of impartiality um, Antonio Conte um, slightly like I said it didn't annoy me because my team beat his team and mm. it, it was through in my opinion his mistakes that won that allowed Newcastle to win the game yesterday um, Conte's mistakes yeah okay um, because. You know, I've always thought Conte is, you know, one of the best managers in the league and therefore the world. And that may still be true. However, his one-dimensional techniques and approach to games can really hurt him if a team works you out. Because in in the games, uh, in, in the two games previous, the Man United game and then the Newcastle game, he hasn't had Son, um, sorry, Richarlison or Kulisevsky. And without them two, he's had to play an extra midfielder in in midfield, and it's been Bissouma, 
Um, it's usually like I think it, against Man United, I think it was Bissouma, Hoiberg, and Bentancur, and then against Newcastle yesterday, it was Bissouma, Bentancur, and Skip, and none of them have much creativity in them. So the only time they looked any sort of threat was when Harry Kane dropped deep and become a number ten and become a playmaker, and he was the only one that could could string a pass forward. And it was only when he got the ball that Newcastle were even slightly in trouble. Um, and I just thought for for Conte to be like so up the creek without a paddle, with just two injuries or like an injury and a suspension in future, maybe like somebody gets suspended, you know that shouldn't undo a team that are trying to do what Spurs are trying to do. They're trying to get in the Champions League. They're trying to end the um, the the trophy drought, and it was it was poor. I think. Um, Having the two up front and the extra man in midfield at home is is a crime, to be honest. If you look at the bench, there's there's players who um, can at least be another attacker. They might not be as good as Kulisevsky or Richarlison, but Brian Gill and Lucas Moura were on the bench. And you think, at least you can keep your shape if one of those teams, mm. if one of those players comes in and replaces Kulisevsky or, or Richarlison because... You know, Brian Gill would would play there, and so would Lucas Moura. And in in the second half, it got even worse when he put Lucas Moura on the pitch, and then for the five minutes, first five minutes, he was on the pitch. He was looking around, talking to people, and, and people were saying, "Where are you playing?" And he he looked confused. And it, even the the commentators picked up on it. They were like, "I'm not sure Lucas Moura knows where he's playing." So he came on, just mulled around for a bit, didn't do anything. <laughs> And then they lost the game, and I don't think Moura touched the ball more than three or four times. So it was it was just a huge thing, and I thought... How I think can he just co- struggles to use the personnel he's got. Do you think he doesn't know... Because there's huge attacking I, options in that Spurs team. Yeah, I just think he he has his best eleven, and if he doesn't have that, he goes, oh, I've got to play this guy or this guy, and they're not my players, and I don't want to... I don't really want to put my faith in them because I don't uh, I don't I don't rate them as high as the the players that I haven't got available but it's a 38 game well, it's a 55 game season for mm. Spurs you know they're talking you're talking a lot of games six Champions League games probably at least two knockout games after that cup games on top of that then league cup as well and you know there's, there's huge um, numbers of minutes involved you're never going to have your, your, your strongest team and even though he's added loads of depth there seems to be a huge like two levels to Spurs. There's his first team players that he wants, and then there's the te- the players that he has to play at times. He's in it with like Jed Spence. He's played two minutes all season. Mm. Like they signed him, and then he went. I mean, Conte said he's a he's a signing that the club wanted to make, and what he wasn't saying uh, directly was that I didn't want this player, and he's got him. Doesn't use him. I don't blame him for not using him. If you if if you want to play other people, play other people, but. That is depth that you've been given that you're now just refusing to use. It is interesting that Conte's nine to one to get the sack. We're going to talk about the sack race later, but I do wonder whether. I mean, which is crazy for a team that are in sports. Spurs are in fourth, I think, aren't they? Third, third is it? I mean, it just seems crazy that he's even being questioned at the moment. But you're right; there seems to be a bit of the the kind of veil falling around him at the moment. I think. To be honest, it's like it's nine to one for him to get sacked, for example. Like, but 
it's more i mean that those odds also cover him leaving and you can never mm. after after burnley last year where he he basically <laughs> had a, him, he? you know a total breakdown and you thought he was going to smash the place up <clears> and walk out and never come back that has to be factored into the odds, for example. So that's it. You can see you, just a big blowout, can't you? Yeah. Where he if you've throws got his hat, hat down and walks out, yeah, basically. If you've got a volatile Italian in charge of your club, you know you're never more than too far away. Especially when Juventus are doing terrible in 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 Italy, you've always got that like temptation and, and that out uh, route to um, to tempt him away. So Marley is putting Conte in the bin. We'll talk about his future a little bit more later. I'm going to flip it as well because I didn't think there was a huge amount to have a moan about this weekend. So instead of putting something in the sea, I'm going to take Danny Ings out of the sea because I really like what <laughs> he did the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who was it. He might have been in the sea. Oh, uh, is this his earphone thing? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, I mean, not only did he look like a born-again striker in Villa's 4-0 win over Brentford at the weekend, but he showed a touch of class before the game as well, I thought. So, as Marley says, if you didn't see it, he came out onto the pitch wearing a pair of noise-cancelling headphones, which wasn't to block out any boos from the Aston Villa crowd. It was in support of the team's mascot, who was a lad called Riley Regan, who's part of the Villa FC's Foundation Ability Counts Disability Football Group, who was wearing the noise cancelling headphones as well. So I think footballers get a lot of stick and for doing things that are negative or for doing things on social media or doing stupid things. But it's important to call out when they do something positive as well. And I thought it was a really nice touch, not only for Riley, who was going to have to go out onto the pitch wearing these mascot these um, these ear protectors to protect him from his condition, but also for any kids that had similar disabilities and similar needs because I think when you see someone with that kind of level of significance in your life or that kind of media attention doing something that you have to do every day, it can make a real difference to the way you approach your life from that point on and the way people are receptive to you wearing things like ear protectors as well. And kids who did suffer similar issues or had similar conditions will be walking into school just like a little bit taller this morning I thought it was really nice so mm. congratulations to Danny Ings it was a really nice gesture not something he had to do by nope. any stretch of the imagination but something he did and I think he deserves yeah. a lot of credit for it yeah Stephen Gerrard could have done with a pair in the, uh, in, the in the Fulham game couldn't he <laughs> <laughs> very what true what saying we want him out <laughs> in his own club <laughs> right we're going to move on to tonight's Premier League action next it's West Ham versus Bournemouth and we'll do it on Football Social Daily after this Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. What's up, sandwich heads? Today on Steve O's Sandwich Reviews, we've got the tips and tricks to the best sandwich order. And it all starts with this little guy right here Pepsi Zero Sugar. Partial to pastrami, craving a Cubano. Yeah, sounds delicious, but boom! Add the crisp, refreshing taste of Pepsi Zero Sugar and cue the fireworks. Lunch, dinner, or late night, it'll be a sandwich worth celebrating. Trust me, your boy's eaten a lot of sandwiches in his day, and the one thing I can say with absolute fact, every bite is better with Pepsi. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily. We're talking about the final game of the Premier League weekend now. It's my lot, West Ham. They're playing Bournemouth at the London Stadium. And to help guide us through it, we're joined by one of the splendid podcasts on the Sports Social Podcast Network, Sam from Back of the Net, the AFC Bournemouth podcast. How are you doing, Sam? Doing very well, doing very well. Confident ahead of tonight? 
Wouldn't say that, but I'd certainly <laughs> take a point. I think our midweek loss at home, Southampton, slightly derailed us in terms of our confidence, but hopefully we can get back on track tonight. I mean, the interesting thing is Gary O'Neill, I guess, because up until that Southampton game, he was on an unbeaten run as Bournemouth manager. He's not got the gig full-time yet, but how impressed have you been with him so far? I mean, I guess this is his audition for the gig full-time. It pretty much is. I mean, you cannot argue with the stats until the Saints game. We were unbeaten under him. He was he took a side that was bereft of confidence and he, he turned them into a team that has been managing to get points and score goals. I think the jury's still out on his future in terms of the management position. I think he's probably a bit too naive and inexperienced for that. However, I'd love to see him kept on in the club uh, in some way or another. And also, one thing I've found from listening to his post-match conferences and uh, pre-match presses is that he's an excellent communicator as well and he seems to understand the club even though he's been around only for a short time he he sort of references past issues that you know back in 1997 when we had a financial collapse so it's clear that he's indulged himself in the club so he's won over a lot of supporters but uh, you know he's doing a fantastic job as interim however um, not quite sure about the full position. I must confess, I don't watch a great deal deal of Bournemouth play, but when you look at the stats, it would suggest that one of their problems is at the back. They've conceded 18 goals this season. Only Southampton have conceded more. But then on the flip side of that, nine of those 18 were conceded against Liverpool in a single game. So is that genuinely a concern for Bournemouth? Is that one of the problem areas? I think that was, I mean, that was the last game under Scott Parker's tenure. And since Gary O'Neill's come in, he's, he's shored it up at the back. He's got, he's got a couple of different formations that he, he can toy with uh, during a game. I think teams are finding us a little bit harder to break down under Gary O'Neill. Look, we are very susceptible at the back. Our captain Lloyd Kelly is out and he's, he's leggy, he's pacey. And at the moment, our centre-back partnership, whilst they're very strong, in terms of their speed on the ground, they're, they're, they're not particularly quick. So if we come up, if we come up against, a, you know, like a very pacey striker, we, we, we sometimes can have problems. But we are improving on that department. The, the thing that's always got us out of jail is that we're capable of scoring. And certainly in the last couple of games, we haven't been doing that as much. So that's, that is a concern. You're probably all right against West Ham then because there's a bit of a lack of pace in that West Ham squad. Ooh. So they're not going to cause you too many issues on that front. In terms of Premier League status then, I mean, it's still very early days and we keep on banging on about how the World Cup's around the corner but and it's going to make a huge difference to this season. The Premier League table is silly tight at the moment. Three points can get you into the top 10. Losing can get you into the relegation zone within a couple of weeks. It's really on edge. But how confident are you that Bournemouth can retain their Premier League status? Because it looked like it was a surefire thing in the early weeks until you got rid of Scott Parker. He's gone. There's a bit of stability coming in there. Do you think you're still going to be in the top flight next season? It's interesting. They say the Championship is the most exciting league in the world, but this season the Premier League is completely. I mean, we're, we're, we're proving the, the media and the doubters wrong. I think the main aim was always to take points from teams in and around us. And until the Saints game, we were, we were doing just that. Long way to go, players out, etc. But I think... 17th and above would be absolutely superb for us. However, the start of the season is actually give us a little bit of hope. Therefore, if we can get points here and there, but mainly make our home a fortress, then then there's a good chance. And a few other sides in the Premier League, their form is is looking a little bit shady. So I'm I'm sort of looking at them thinking, oh, maybe they're relegation candidates. But at the moment, I think uh, we're treading water, but uh, I'm very wary how quickly it can change.
If you do get a result tonight, where's it going to come from? Probably Dom Solanke or Phil Billing, I'd say. Uh, Dom Solanke, he works so hard. I mean, his stats, when you look at his figures in terms of the goals he scored, it's not particularly great, but he works so hard for every for every goal. I think he's been involved in, um, you know, many goal movements, whether it's assists or scoring himself. He's been integral to most of them. So probably Dom Solanke, but we just need to be gladiators at the back. And it'll be one that we grind out a win. I mean, I know our games against West Ham, they've been quite high-scoring affairs over recent seasons, but I've got a feeling this one could be a little bit tighter. Sam, I wish you best of luck for the game, but I'm not going to, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Worst of luck for the game. But um, enjoy tonight, and thanks very much for coming on Football Social Daily. You can hear more from Sam and the other boys from Back of the Net, the AFC Bournemouth podcast on the Sports Social Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts. Cheers, Sam. Cheers, thank you. So that's the thoughts of Sam on Bournemouth, Marley. How about West Ham? Because they've been up and down this season. One of the big positives is Craig Dawson is back from injury. Ballon Dawson. Rejoice. Back to shore up the He's back. West Ham the saviour is back. I mean, it, it seems crazy to be fest, that to be optimistic about Craig Dawson coming back into your team. But at the same time, West Ham have played the last few weeks with just one centre-back. So it's a big plus for David Moyes. It's always risky uh, going into a game with one centre-back. West Ham team, we've done it for most of the last uh, two years. Yeah, I was going to say, much. I can't remember a game this year where you didn't have, uh, as in this calendar year, um, without you saying, oh, we've only got one centre-back this week. It's usually like a different centre-back every week. Yeah. So it's like Zuma's back, but Dawson's out. And then like Sufal's injured and he was playing centre-back. So Ben Johnson's playing centre-back and it's like, Jesus, when are you just going to get three centre-backs fit. Like Cresswell's filled in a few times there and he's yeah. four foot one, I think. Exactly, so I mean, yeah. He's not ideal fodder. It's like Martinez at Manchester United. <laughs> Except less aggressive and, yeah, and, and, and not good. good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but no, it's, I don't know with West Ham. You said they were up and down. I'd probably argue they're more down than up so far this season given the fact that they are 17th, are they, going into this? Thanks to um, some teams at the bottom, Leicester and Forest winning at the weekend. It's got, it's got a little bit tighter. Mm. Um, so it's a little bit squeaky bum time, isn't it, for for West Ham? They need to pick up wins. They're more than good enough to do it. Um, and tonight they need to start that tonight because Bournemouth have been riding a little streak, but then lost um, lost disappointingly to Southampton. Um, and then you know, as as we've just talked about, you know, the uh, the sort of uh, there's a renewed confidence under under Gary O'Neill, even though they've not given him the job properly yet. So uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see who comes out on top. I mean, West Ham's league position in 17th, I think it's a bit of a false position, Joel, because they did have a terrible start to the season. Form had picked up recently, particularly when you count in the European football. Desperately unlucky against Liverpool last week as well. They deserved a point. And there are positive signs there. Skamaka looks good. Cornet's impressed when he's been fit on those rare occasions. Pockets looks good, although he's injured at the moment. Allgaard, who came in at the summer to fill in and centre-back, is injured. So... <laughs> It feels like despite those early setbacks and despite the fact they're in 17th, I don't know whether I'm just looking at it through claret and blue spectacles, but it feels like those early season ambitions of sixth still aren't totally out of the question. I mean, are you speaking with your West Ham, big West Ham head on there? Bloody I, hell. <laughs> predicting sixth isn't out of the question after 10 games when you're 17th. Is, is, it's not just... I thought he was just going to say relegation like, safety. Yeah, it's not having 
rose-tinted spectacles with a West Ham lens on. It's like having one claret eyeball but, but and one blue like eyeball. The James Webb telescope. Three, the West three Ham wins off six, though. Three wins off six. <laughs> yeah, if everyone from 17th to 5th loses. <laughs> uh, okay, oh, my yeah. God. I mean, right. So, with perspective, without, without James Milner's big toe, and without Alison Becker having amazing hands in goal, it would have been a different story at Anfield. And when you look at the bottom half of the table, it's such a pendulum swinger of a half where two points, three points takes you into 15th. And then if you lose, it takes you back to 18th. And then the pressure just keeps bouncing from one team to another. So I don't think it's a realistic view at this stage of the season. And I think with West Ham, one of the biggest issues has been goals because they're the third lowest scoring team in the mm-hmm. league at the moment. And when you compare that to last year, where they were just really free flowing, there was goals coming from all the areas of the pitch. Do you think Gareth Bowen as well as a team because they're 12, twelve points worse off now than they were at this stage last season, which, which is, is significant. That's a point a game, or over a point a game. And like you say, they're struggling to score goals. Have they gone backwards this season under Moyes? It's weird to think that though, because they spent the is it the most they've ever spent in a summer? Second um, most. Second I think. most. I think they spent more under um, Pellegrini when he first came in. On but rubbish. Even, yeah. I was going to say, I'd love to see the uh, the receipt and the list of, of who he signed at that point and where the money went. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the, it was ambitious signings. I mean, Skamaka, he was linked with Paris Saint Germain. Uh, Paqueta, he was linked with some of the best sides in Europe. So it was not as if they've gone that direction of just sporadic spending. It seemed to be pretty strategic. But when you look at the team now, there's just no goals in it. I mean, Mikel mm. Antonio and Jared Bowen, though the two guys who you would look to to get your goals. Jared Bowen got England call-ups because of it and now it just seems I don't know if it's a bit of a hangover from last season because there was just it was such a long season it was such a good season for them as well that's why I'm just so surprised but I just think that in the last few games I've seen a little bit more of an encouraging sign I don't know if it's a fair case to say against Liverpool though because they're they're a team you'd want to play right now Um, but the fact that you go to Anfield and you're close to getting a result I think it can only it can only mean good things and like I say, I mean, if West Ham get a result tonight, three points, it takes you all the way up to 11th, mm-hmm. which is, this is what I mean. It's all about perspective at this stage of the season. And then if you win one more game after that, it takes you all the way up to seventh. So, Jim, you might have a bit of a case there, to be fair, because it's honestly, it's just the game of hopscotch at this stage where I don't really see any relevance in the table whatsoever. I think the only relevance you should take is the form. And that's the reason why, for example, Jesse Marsh is one of the guys who's under pressure right now because he's, he's lost four and five. Whereas I think with Moyes, because he's getting a little bit better form and there's more encouraging signs and you have to take the context of all the injuries that are happening. I think that when everything comes together, West Ham will be perfectly fine. Like that's the bottom line. But where compared to last season, I think they're just absolutely miles off. And I don't think you can expect to have a such a successful season like last, like last season. We are going to get stuck into the managers feeling the pressure at the moment. We're going to take a look at the mid-season sack race because the likes of West Ham will be looking at Bournemouth and Aston Villa who saw huge changes of fortune when they've switched managers and we'll talk about who could be next up for the chop on Football Social Daily after this. Right, that's that. Let's go back to the beginning. This podcast is a sports social production. Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Right, final bit of today's Football Social Daily. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about the sack race. Who is next? Already 
sacked this season. Scott Parker, Thomas Tuchel, Bruno Large, Steven Gerrard. But there's a load of managers under pressure as well. Brendan Rodgers, Jesse Marsh, Ralph Hasenhutl or David Moyes. So who's going to go? Marley, we've seen four managers go already this season. We're 10-11 games in. Do you think this could be end up being one of the most brutal in terms of sackings? Because it feels like, and I haven't looked at the stats on this, but it feels like we're ahead of the curve in terms of managers getting sacked <laughs> a quarter of the way into the season. I'd be amazed if we weren't ahead of the curve. What are we, 10 games in and four managers have gone yeah. and at least two, but up, so to, the up most, to four are the on the The most sackings in a Premier League season was the 93-94 season, seven. Sorry, wrong. 94-95 was nine. Nine? Is that it? Yeah. So what are we on now? Four? Yeah. Could we get to nine? Easily. Maybe, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at... Rodgers is kind of hanging on when he... I mean, he obviously did great result the weekend, um, beating Wolves 4-0, but you look at them, you look at Southampton, you look at other teams down there, I'm still not entirely convinced Forrest will, will keep Steve Cooper till the end of the season. It's all very well beating Liverpool, but if you lose your next six games in a row, mm. they, they might they might um, make a decision on him. So there's a, there's a lot. You know, Hasenhutl's been on the brink and then rescue, rescues himself from it over and over again for the last two or three years. Um, so yeah, it's um, <laughs> we're definitely ahead of the curve because you've you've got that the World Cup as well, which is like a big settling in period for a new manager. So it might just. Uh, convince people to um to sort of tip them over the edge sort of thing if if you're thinking about it and it's 50-50 that that month where a new manager could come in and work with the squad is uh, is pretty big for uh, for owners and and sporting directors that are thinking about uh, making a change in terms of who's going to be feeling nervous at the moment about their jobs, Joel, the odds at the moment, Jesse Marsh, favourite to go. He's one to three, so it suggests Oof. it's going to happen pretty soon. Ralph Hasenhutl is five to one. Thomas Frank, eight to one. Conte, as I said earlier, nine to one. Brendan Rodgers, 12 to one. Frank Lampard and Steve Cooper, both 16 to one. David Moyes, 20 to one. Jurgen Klopp, 25 to one. And Roberto oh. De Zerbi, who I actually had to, I was like, I had to, when I saw his name on the list earlier, I was like, who does he manage? <laughs> he sneaked in the back door yeah, of Brian. Exactly. So he's 33 to 1 already. He's only a few weeks into the job. So who do you think is going to be feeling the pressure most out of that lot? I mean, Jesse Marsh is the obvious answer, I guess. Yeah, I think when you look at all the teams near the bottom, but like I say, you know, at the start, it, it's a matter of perspective at this stage. But when you look at Leeds' form at the moment, I don't, I really don't know where the wins are coming from because obviously they've lost the last four games, and the ones to come. I mean, the Bournemouth one coming up on Saturday is a massive one, and then you've got Tottenham on the twelfth of November, which for both of those teams is pretty huge as well. Then City shortly after Newcastle. I mean, he could be gone by the time they end up playing Newcastle. I think just because I genuinely don't see where they're getting a victory from at the moment and when you look around him and the teams that are around him I mean Wolves have they even hired a permanent manager yet no nope. not yet no. well they've given it uh, Steve Davis till uh, December. December they've offered it to a few people yeah I mean if they get Amarim I think I would say that they're safe in my opinion and then you've got Forrest they've already offered um, have already given Cooper a what three-year contract and then West Ham, Leicester, I still think that their owners believe in both of the managers and David Moyes and Rodgers. So that the only one you can really point to is Jesse Marsh. So unless he can get a, couple, a little bit of momentum going in the next few games, which I really don't see happening, I think the writing's on the wall for him. And it's 
it's a bit strange because at the start of the season they looked really good. Mm. Like you know, Aronson, um, the new signing, he was scoring a few goals. Uh, uh, Rodrigo, Rodrigo started. He, on yeah, fire, he started. Yeah. He's got four goals, I think, in his first five games. And I was thinking, God, he's actually got them playing after losing Rafinha, Calvin Phillips. And kind of replacing Bamford in a way because he's just not got up to the form that we remember him as. And I was thinking, he looks like he's really turned a corner with this side. But like I say, the first half of the season or the first quarter of the season is just not a representation of what's going to happen at all. Because like we're seeing now, they can't seem to get any victories on the board and they're really struggling to score goals as well. So it's going to be interesting to see. But I really don't see him surviving past that Newcastle game because... The teams that he's coming up against, especially City. I mean, City could end up absolutely walloping them that day. And I don't know how much resolve the owners have when it comes to sacking because obviously with Bielsa, it was almost coming, but they didn't want to do it because he had such an impact on that City and in that club. But now that it looks like the form just isn't there and it's not going to come anytime soon, I do think think the writing's on the wall for him. I did see some Leeds fans saying how much they fancy Mauricio Pochettino coming into management. Yeah, but does he fancy them? Well, that's it. It's a bit <laughs> of wishful thinking, I think. But at the same time, there are a couple of big-name managers on the market at the moment, Marley, and the likes of Pochettino and Tuchel. But, I mean, Leeds United and Southampton might be dreaming a little bit, or even Brentford to think Villa. they could get a... Yeah, could potentially get a manager like that. But if mm. you're a... I don't know, if you're in Everton and you've got Frank Lampard in your dugout at the moment... Is the likes of Tuchel and Pochettino on the market going to maybe accelerate you getting rid of a manager like Frank Lampard and replacing him because you have the option of an upgrade? Yeah, I think I think sacking managers is about timing, and you know you see you see some teams do it where they offer they offer it to this person and that person, and they say no, and then they're left up the creek without a paddle. I think that's what's happened to Wolves this year. Um, they've offered it to. Um, who did they offer it to now? Um, the QPR manager, Mick Beal, and he just said no. And he was like, they were like, oh, God. I can't understand why clubs don't have the next manager lined up before they get rid of the old one. It seems like yeah. such an obvious thing to do. Well, what Watford usually did, didn't they? You know, they had 20. <laughs> yeah, they had 20 at any one time, just yeah, ready to go. Just guys on speed dial, right? You're next. It's like, it's like winning the postcode lottery. You get an email, you are Watford manager this week. And it's, uh, yeah, that that's, tends to be how it works. But, I mean, yeah, there's, there's there's obvious candidates out there like Tuchel and Poch. However, I mean, I, I I said last week they were they were they're too high for Aston Villa. If they're too high for Aston Villa, they're also too high for Everton, in my opinion, and Wolves and Brentford and Brighton when they uh, lost Potter a few weeks back. And I think they're just waiting for for an, an elite job to come up. Um, and they'll probably get it as well because they're both quality managers and, and they've they've proved it. They've they've sort of done their times at, at clubs like Everton uh and Villa and, and stuff like that. They don't need to go to a rebuilding job in a and a project. They can go into a almost finish art finished article that are coming off the back of a couple of bad years like like Juventus, as I mentioned before, or like uh in France, maybe Lyon, for example, who who might change their manager because they're not doing that well at the minute. Like all you got to do in that league is get close to PSG, and that's as good as you can get. You know what I mean? Mm. It's 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 a much easier job, and you've you've got way more at your disposal. Champions League football probably is very achievable in 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 a a league like that. So why would you come to to Everton or to Villa or to Brentford and and go? 
well, if we get the next three years right, we can we can push for a Champions League place in in three or four years or a Europa League place. It's just the the league is that full of money and that full of like killer sides that it's just a huge risk for any of them to to drop down and take on a project when they could wait for something much better. Two of the managers on the list, Joel, Ralph Hasenhutl and Brendan Rodgers, might feel a little bit hard done by that they're even being considered for getting the boot, or maybe Brendan Rodgers not, because I thought a couple of weeks ago it looked like he wanted to get the sack. But they've had huge restrictions on them in terms of the players they've been able to bring in and the transfers their club have made and the resource available to them. Is it harsh to expect them to be doing any better than they are? I mean, with Brandon Rogers, I think it was clear from the start of the season that the owners were going to stick with him regardless of what happens, just because I don't think they had the money to even pay out his contract. Mm. And I think it showed with how much they spent in the summer, they have had their the hands tied behind the back. And I think with Harsen Hutel, um yeah, the results are not going incredible at the moment. I mean, that draw against Arsenal yesterday probably offers him a little bit of a lifeline. Um, but I still think that like I say, just one win in this league and it really does relieve so much pressure and takes all of these rumours away. But I, I hope that the owners of these clubs are not just looking at quick pendulum swings. They're looking at the project and they're thinking two, three, four, five months ahead rather than next game, next game, are we going to sack him if he loses over in the relegation places? They need to be looking at, can this guy take us forward? Because I think with Harsen Hutz, I have the strongest conviction that he'll stay. And that's purely because he, he, he stayed and got backed after two back-to-back 9-0 losses. I mean, what manager manages to stay after a 9-0 loss? Yeah. To, let alone Not two. quite back-to-back. I mean, it happens season Yeah, I didn't mean it in the game after game because that would be incredible if he survived that. But oh, I mean, to, to have two 9-0 losses in pretty short periods of time between each other, I still think it's pretty incredible. So obviously the owners really mm. believe in him. And same with Brendan Rodgers. The only thing is with Jesse Marsh, I just don't think that he has it. And I think with Spurs, I think Pochettino's waiting for that job in the sidelines. I think that's the one that he, even before Paris Saint-Germain, I think he was still waiting on, but he, he just never arrived. Back. Yeah, it was. I think it was a big thing for him to lose that job. Yeah. I think it really hurt him. And yeah, then he was. got PSG and he was like, oh, that's actually And it didn't make sense. Good. It was like the worst marriage I've ever seen. It was Pochettino loves like developing young players and working on a little bit of a budget. And then he goes to Paris Saint-Germain with all these huge egos. He's basically being controlled by Al-Khalafi and Leonardo. And he, he wasn't even controlling the side in the end. Yeah. So I think when I saw it, I was like, this is not Pochettino's club at all. He'll end mm. up in tears. And I still think and I believe, although I said at the start of the season, I think Spurs will be there or thereabouts for the title. With Conte, you know, he's very, uh, how do we describe him? Very flippant. You just don't know what you're going to get in two months' time, do you? So I think that if we're going to look at who will be the next interchange, I do think Pochettino's definitely waiting on that job. I don't necessarily want West Ham to change managers, and I don't think they will, because I think the board are going to be hugely reluctant to pay David Moyes out of his contract. Mm. But if Pochettino was an option, I think West Ham and Pochettino would be a real... Do you think Pochettino would go to West Ham? With the Spurs thing, I don't know. That's but, what I mean. Like That's a, that's an extra thing. Like, but, I, but I mean, I, th- I think the, there's, there's a project to be had at West Ham at the moment. Yeah. And if you can bring in the right manager who can see out that project and develop the style of football and make use of the talent that's there, I could see I could see someone like Pochettino being a really good fit. I don't think it'll happen because maybe the Spurs thing, maybe the amount of money mm. he'd cost to bring in mm. and the amount of money he'd have to spend probably play against that scenario. But I think that's what I'm saying. Like if If a Premier League team has the option to upgrade and they've 
work their succession plan out, mm. that's when you make the change. You don't just suddenly yeah, go, yeah. Ah, got, get rid of a manager. Plan. Right, what do we do now? Yeah, yeah. It seems a ridiculous way to There's run any many, kind of business. There's too many clubs that have done that over the past, isn't it? You can tell by the fact that they don't improve afterwards. Yeah. And you just think, how how much have you thought about this? Like, isn't it Newcastle a few years ago when, when we got Steve Bruce? We were after another, another few managers before that. And in the end, we went, it was panic stations. Mm. Went and paid Sheffield Wednesday £3 million to get Steve Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What? Didn't look like the wisest choice it's in retrospect, does still it? Still wise now. <laughs> I remember, do you remember? We were we were recording a podcast in there, in that next studio, and you said to me, you'll end up with Bruce. And I was like, please, God, no. And two weeks later, we ended up with Bruce. Marley Nostradamus. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Jim said it. Oh, Jim said yeah, it. Yeah, Jim oh, said it. Jim, he was like, you'll Jim end up with Steve. I'm not even sure Jim tried to actually believe it I think he was just trying to wind me up <laughs> but it's, just like right. say, it's just like I, every time someone gets a sack I go Sean Dyche <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> yeah, it's the same you've thing you've got to be right at one point yeah, exactly. you? you've got to you enough mud at a wall some little stick let's finish today's podcast on a fascinating fact that I learnt this weekend listening to the Southampton Arsenal game on the radio oh. do you know what Ralph Hasenhutl's name translates as in Austrian as a direct translation do you know what Hasenhutl means nine beers nope uh, Hasenhaus oh get close Ooh, you're not far House on the hill. Busy? It means rabbit hutch. His name, the translation of his that. name is Ralph Rabbit Hutch. <laughs> which is a fantastic name. And if nothing else, it's the reason he should not lose his job at Southampton. Right, that is it for today's Football Social Daily. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget you can find more great podcasts you'll love on whatever sport it is you want to listen to on the Sports Social Podcast Network. Just head to sport social .co.uk and make sure you've clicked subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Niall will be back later with a football social daily shots which may or may not concern news on a new or a departing Leeds United manager. We'll see you next time. Daily Premier League action and reaction. This is Football Social Daily.